Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture. I'm Sam Fragoso, thank you for tuning in. This week on the show, we have acclaimed author and MTV film critic Amy Nicholson. Amy has been writing about the movies for more than a decade, most notably as the film critic for LA Weekly, where she wrote for three years. At the Weekly, she was a perfect mix of funny, insightful, and incisive. She could write beautifully about a movie she loved, or scathingly about a film she loathed. When Amy is not being one of America's best film critics, she's an author. Her first book, Tom Cruise, Anatomy of an Actor, delivered exactly what the title promises, a detailed examination of the life and work of Tom Cruise, from risky business to eyes wide shut to Scientology to Mission Impossible. Now, Nicholson can be found on the recently revamped MTV News, where she serves as their chief film critic. In case you didn't know it already, she's a passionate critic, great writer, and even better human being. So, finally, here's Amy Nicholson. This was like a weird, like, therapist setup. <laughs> yeah. You're in this chair and, like, you're on the couch. I'm not lying down. Yeah. Uh, have you done there? I've never... Okay. I did it, like, four times when I was breaking up with a boyfriend, and I was like, oh, this is fine. Oh, good. See, I did yeah. it for like 10 months yeah and um there's always there's so there's a couch and then there's a chair yeah and you can decide i don't know what your the, your setup was like it was like a tiny love seat oh i think it was just a tiny love seat okay i never went on the couch though i just <laughs> feel like that would be a woody allen movie you'd be like me lying flat yeah it's so stereotypical 
I don't know. It was weird. I just yeah. went and then I realized I felt like I didn't even have anything to talk about and it was okay. So can we just start from the beginning? Yeah. Where were you born? Oh, where was I born? Yeah. Oh, what um, do you think I meant by beginning? I don't know, like the beginning of time. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, if you want to give that interpretation and tell <laughs> tell us how that happened, I am a deist. Or I was a deist. No, no, I'm an atheist. So I don't know. Absolutely a big bang. No, I was born in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, really? Yeah. See, fuck, I didn't even know that. Yeah, no, I left when I was eight or nine months okay. old. Yeah. Well, because like my family's all from Michigan. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Like Where? Ka- Which Kalamazoo part? and. Yeah, uh, yeah, and all other we're small like towns. Port Huron mostly, like the little knuckle by the thumb, right by yeah. the Canadian border. So you left at eight, or we left? We left Lansing when I was eight months old and went to Saginaw for a couple of years. My parents were both getting their degrees at Michigan State. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my dad was finishing law school, or he had just finished, and he was doing his like clerking stuff, the the low rent little things you have to do when you're a lawyer, right? And my mom was getting her PhD in child psychology or educational child psychology, like. Mm-hmm. Writing the SAT, that kind of a thing. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like kids on the couch. But That's more what I like, thought it was, yeah. Kids on the couch. Yeah, it's more like how <laughs> do kids learn, like spatial reasoning. And yeah, she wrote the SAT for a couple of years. Well, uh, yeah. She's a big nerd. I didn't do well in the SAT. Really? I don't think so. No, I don't know. I don't know. <gasps> did you? I did. Well, my mom wrote it. I, I know, did very that, well. I was about to say. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. like, that's some bullshit cheating right there. Yeah, I know the SAT saved my life. It got like my, it got me a scholarship to college. It was like my dream. Yeah, really? but my mom was making me take the SAT when I was seven, seven. so it's kind of not so fair. Hard. We're totally jumped. So like, you moved at eight. You're taking this SAT oh. at seven. Oh wait, no, I moved at five to you Texas. At, you moved at five to Texas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, I was eight months old when we moved to Michigan cities, and then my mom got a job at the SAT company or yeah. Harcourt Brice Jovanovich. They wrote. Educational textbooks, and nice. that was Can in you Texas. Say that title again? Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. Nicely done. Yeah. They used to run SeaWorld. Oh, was their weird thing. But they're like, <laughs> if you look at almost any school textbook, it might be from Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. Right. So that's what took us to Texas. Okay, and Texas is where I grew up, San Antonio. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so I don't know anything about San Antonio. Uh, it's where the Alamo is from. Yeah, okay, that I know. I mean, yeah. I mean like, what what is a day like? What is your teenage life and in, in, in San Antonio. Oh, San Antonio is great. Like, I feel like I spend my life advocating for San Antonio, especially because of the rise of Austin. And we're rivals. It's a one-sided rivalry. Like, Austin doesn't care, but San Antonio cares because we're about an hour away. Well, we're an hour away from Austin, and we're much bigger. Like, we have... San Antonio is the seventh biggest city in America. Like, you can check that. It's true. And nobody knows or cares about it. It has that, it has the river thing. Mm hmm. The river walk. It's I only, beautiful. I only know that because I like the Spurs. Exactly. And so, like, every time they do, like, during the halftime, they'll do, like, a wide aerial shot of San Antonio. And that's it's all I remember. Beautiful. Yeah. It, it looked really nice. Yeah. You see the river. It's, like, tons of tourists drinking margaritas. Yeah. We dye it green at St. Patrick's Day. We put Christmas lights all over it in yeah. the holidays. It's beautiful town, but all the bands and all the filmmakers wind up moving to Austin because it's just an hour away and it's the only place people look for creative people. Yeah. So I hate Austin because of that. Okay. Yeah. That's like you're making a strong stance right there that you hate <laughs> that you hate Austin. Well, you know, Austin gets all this rep for being the liberal part of Texas. But, I mean, I would say a couple of things. Like, San Antonio is also crazy liberal. You know, we... Was, it, li- like, was it liberal when you grew up there? Mm-hmm. But it's like dyed-in-the-wool 
Catholic charity liberal, you know, where it's like, but like my mother, for example, is like a really strong Catholic who believes a lot in advocating against the death penalty and helping the poor and values that make her very democratic. Right. And so it's that kind of a city. It's like a working class, blue collar, religious liberal, which is, Mm. I guess, is kind of weird and interesting. I really like it a lot. Mm. And then Austin gets all the credit because it's college kids. I understand. So you were raised Catholic? Uh, no, I was raised Greek Orthodox. Oh, okay. It, my parents were different religions. Oh. So my dad was um, a Catholic person who quit the, ca- the Catholic Church when he was 22 and became a Greek Orthodox, which is like their kind of the original Christian. Um, they're, they're, they're just the oldest Christianity, I think. And they, uh, like the Catholic Church splintered off of them. And he got really into it because um, there's an author named Nikos Kazantzakis. He wrote like Zorba the Greek. Okay, I don't know this, but yeah, so Nikos Kazantzakis was my dad's favorite author. He was like, my dad was like kind of a beatnik intellectual mm-hmm. type, you know, beard and pipes. I mean, it was like the 60s, 70s. Yeah. And your mom was. My mom was more like valedictorian Hillary Clinton kind of. Oh, that's such a good combo. Yeah, it's a cool combo. It works. But um, yeah, so my dad was just a hippie, like. Because Lansing in Port Huron, which is where he grew up, was the home of Students for Democratic Society. Now I feel like I'm talking like in all different circles. But he knew those kids, and he was like that kind of rebel tweed jacket dude who was like, I'm going to read up on Greek Orthodox because I love Zorba (laughs) the Greek. And so he converted, and then that's what I ended up being raised as, is Greek Orthodox, Mm -hmm. while my mom stayed Catholic. So were you like a mix of those two in high school? Kind of. Like they sent me to a Catholic high school. Yeah, I went to one of those. Yeah, they're great, right? I mean, they're kind of great. They're weird. I could do without the uniforms. I love the uniforms. Really? Yeah. Well, it definitely allowed you not to think about what you're going to put on. Yeah. Is that why you liked it? Definitely that. And I think I was kind of a... I didn't start Catholic school till high school. They moved me over when I was a freshman. Okay. And middle school was horrible because I was worried so much about what I was going to wear every day and if Uh. I looked cool. And we didn't have that much money when I was a kid, so... I always felt like I was underdressed. All of my friends were like raised by these suburban moms who curled their hair and gave them puff paint shirts. Mm. And my parents were like, I don't know, put on something, go. And so I always felt underdressed. And all of a sudden having a uniform was amazing. I felt like I wasn't stressed out so much about looking that much poorer than all of my friends. Right. So, but did you have like religion classes? Yeah, weird ones. We had a nun called Sister Elizabeth, and we had to take multiple choice tests on things like, what does your body do after it dies? Oh, your soul can like transform from here to there. Like It's a perfect multiple choice type yeah. of question. Yeah, you had to memorize all sorts of bullshit. You know, it, it was hilarious. Was it funny to you even then? Like, were you like, this is not, what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, my earliest, we're really going into religion. Okay, yeah, no, my earliest memories were like going to... The Greek Orthodox Church with my dad, and he was in the choir. And climbing underneath his robe, because I would just spend all the church inside of his robe, like it was this big tent, because he was in the choir, so they had these big black robes. And sitting there and being like, this is such bullshit. When do we get to leave? Like (laughs) Being like, I know I'm supposed to be scared or believe in heaven and hell, and it never made any sense to me. Mm. And um, yeah. I don't know, when I finally put the words in it and said I was an atheist, it was like, yeah, you've been feeling that way since you were... A baby. It wasn't even a hard transition. What age was that? Oh, when I was under his robe, I was probably five or six. And then 
I think I didn't come out and say I was atheist until 21. I went oh, so through after a, high school. Yeah, I went through a period of being like a deist or just no, like not really putting the words to it or thinking about uh, it, and knowing I didn't care. Yeah. And then just coming out and saying like, I'm a deist was the first one. Mm. And then, which is just, you know, you believe that there's some sort of a spirit that created the world or created the universe impartially, tipped over a domino, and then the rest of it happened and it doesn't pay attention to you right or care about what you do and that was what my freshman year college boyfriend was and when he explained that to me i was like yeah i get that that's close to sort of what i feel and then it just took me that one other step of being like well i really believe that the thing that tipped over the domino is nature Hmm. and then if there's nature it's just nature i just believe in nature yeah and i think there's a lot of awe in nature and so it's kind of religious in a way to be like, that's amazing that, you know, we're sitting here in Los Angeles and there's like birds and my cat is here and nature did all of that. That's amazing. A lot of things. And yeah. the food. And had. food. Yeah. Yeah. We just ate like, sorry for people who are listening, we just ate like an omelet and a salad and radishes and mustard. And these are all things that. Thank you for that, by the way. Oh, sure. But <laughs> nature gave it to us or somehow it existed. Yeah, that's true. They're so natural. you were religiously skeptical, like pretty early on. And then throughout yeah. high school and early college. It always just felt unnecessary. Unnecessary. You know? Yeah, like yeah. people can be good to other people without That's That's what I it. got. Because my dad's not, I went to Catholic school, but my dad's not particularly religious. But he, Oh, they just put you there anyways? Uh, it's a long story. But like, Were you a bad kid? No. no well, no, no. Yeah, like, Is it punishment? <laughs> well, did you do something? <laughs> Is this Amy interviewing me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the... The neighborhood I lived in, the public school was, like, not good. Um, and so my mom was like, yeah, you should just go to this Catholic school that where everyone else in our neighborhood was going to. And then I went. And neither of them are religious, actually. But the reason I bring all this up is because I don't know when my dad told me it, but it was maybe sixth, seventh grade where he's like, you just got to be a good person. Like, that's only religion. Like, that's all you need to you know that, that's what i always found so frustrating is in catholicism is like you can be good but only if you're catholic yeah which is such a weird qualifier like i don't understand and never it, that didn't make sense to me and i knew it didn't work because i would like fall asleep in religious classes like i would <laughs> i would it'd be like five minutes in then they'd be opening to psalm 38 45 and i'd be falling asleep and in church i fell asleep all the time like well, that. you didn't have to sit and stand so much, then that didn't keep you awake? Oh, no, they woke me up when I had to stand. <laughs> and, the, and the kneeling, oh, the kneeling was the best, because then I could just kneel and then put my head on the... We're getting very descriptive about how I fell asleep <laughs> and game the system. Anyway, the point is... No, um, but I feel you. I think it was around that age, too, where... You know, when the, when you have to go to Sunday school class, because my mom would make me sometimes go to went. Catholic Sunday school. See, really? Is, yeah, because this is what I'm saying. My parents weren't religious. <sighs> they were just like, go to this private Catholic school and go do that. But wow, uh, they didn't. They didn't really give a shit. My parents were like, you have to pick one of these two religions. Okay. They're like, we don't care which one it is, but Sunday you have to do something. You have to pick that. Yeah, I just went to the Greek one because my dad always stopped for breakfast, and yeah. like the Catholic <laughs> one is just right across the street, and I also. I liked hanging out with my dad a lot on Sundays. Mm. And I sort of liked that at the Greek church, people dressed up. They wore like furs and heels. And at the Catholic church, people were just in jeans. And I liked the excuse to you know, wear a skirt. Yeah. And I think there was probably like a cute boy at some at the Greek church too. It was just like little things. Yeah, that's the detail you definitely remember. 
Yeah. Uh, there's definitely someone. Yeah, but I remember my mom making me go to, you know, Sunday school and going through the whole thing and them explaining that thing where, well, if a person has ever heard of Jesus and they didn't convert, they're going to hell. And being like, why do we send missionaries then to other countries and tell them about Jesus just to set them up for maybe going to hell? Isn't it better to not have a missionary go there so that they never hear the word Jesus and then they're fine? It seemed, it's, um, it seemed kind of mean to like go over there right. and say the word Jesus and then expect them to change their entire life. And if they don't, now they're cursed? Like, it, that was one of those logic holes as a kid where I was like, y'all need to explain this to me or, or your religion's just mean to people. Yeah. There are a lot of logic holes. Yeah. Did you write in high school? Uh, yeah, I would, I helped co-found, like we tried to get the school paper started up again when I was a junior. I tried to do that. And it was a disaster. Didn't work. Yeah. It never works. Yeah, we tried to call it Opus. I was also the photographer for it because I, I wanted to be a photographer back then. And you know, we really wanted to call it Opus. And I remember like our school moderator, the guy that they assigned to kind of supervise our paper, mm-hmm. said, everyone's going to laugh at you if you call it Opus because that just sounds so pretentious. And he just wanted to call it the paper. And I thought that was the dumbest name ever. And so, so we got into thought, a huge fight about it. He thought Opus was pretentious, but the paper... yeah. It was the 90s. I guess he thought it was like he my really understatement. You liked that Michael Keaton movie? It was so ridiculous. I threw a big fit. And then the first issue of the paper. <laughs> what does a big fit look like? I walked out and I was like, I'm getting, I mean, I was an, I was an asshole in high school. Like I was always yeah. getting in trouble. I'm like, they were not cool with me at my school until my senior year. Right. Um, and even then it was still sort of weird. So I was just always like the raising my hand, like, no, 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 this is not right. I'm going to take this to the top. I was like that kid. I love that. It was, it was kind of fun. Like I, I have a demerit. That's my favorite demerit. And it's just checked for other. And then she wrote in Mish Mazinski. She wrote in being sassy. And that's like my <laughs> prized possession. Yeah. There were a lot of dumb fights I got into in high school. That I was very proud of like one time. Cause we had to wear these sweaters, you know? uniform sweaters right and my sweater was too big so i decided i was gonna cut off the bottom and make it kind of a punk rock sweater right and i wore it like that for about a month and then a teacher really noticed what i had done to the sweater and it became this thing where they're like you can't do that you have to get a new sweater and i was like well technically this is the uniform sweater and they couldn't quite argue that you're not allowed to cut it it wasn't in the yearbook like there wasn't in the rule book they didn't (laughs) add it to the rule book like you you may not (laughs) <laughs> reconfigure sweater it might have eventually but i remember just like really fighting this like taking it to the vice principal and being like why should i have to buy another sweater this is the sweater and her finally just going okay i think you're right you're right will you just do it as a favor and then it turned out that was all i wanted to hear i yeah, just wonder if you hear that my argument was correct that's all you want to hear yeah. yeah that's the best thing i'm happy to change just so long as people admit that i'm right about something exactly which i just is, needed which that is, what a fucking crazy like, that's not normal on my part either, though. <laughs> like, that I need that validation that I'm right. I was a jerk. I'm surprised that they, like, put up with me as long as I did. <laughs> so when did you first, you started writing in high school trying to do this paper? Yeah, and I quit that issue one because <laughs> I ran a picture on the front page. Our school had just bought St. Anthony's. We bought it that year. They were independent, and then we took them over. And... um so for the first issue of that, to commemorate this kind of big deal, because we bought them, and now occasionally some boys might be in our classes here right. and there oh, a Was the bit. guy that you were dating in the class? Um, No, he wasn't smart enough. And then he got kicked <laughs> out of his school. He got kicked out of St. Anthony's. But um, 
I ran a picture on the front cover of this friend of mine named Apollo wearing our uniform. And it was Apollo, and he was topless, but he was wearing our skirt. He, you know, it was kind of like a... Oh, like one of those from the knees looking up at the heavens shots where he looked gigantic. Right. And I was like, that's our cover picture. And they weren't going to let me run nipples on the cover. And I just got mad and quit out of protest. You thought a Catholic school was going to be like, yeah, we'll allow nipples. Well, yeah, we I like had this, arguments. We, li- we like this Amy person. <laughs> we like how, you like how she thinks. We're going to bend years <laughs> of suppression and, and like, and yeah. I was genuinely surprised. I think I offered to run a censored bar over the nipples, and then I was just like, I can't do this. You're repressing me. I, yeah. This is, I was a jerk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but a jerk with clear ideals. Yeah. I've, I'm embarrassed by a lot of the stuff I pulled in high school. I remember. Uh-huh. Well, not really. Like, uh, but <laughs> I do remember. It makes you who you are, though. Yeah. Well, I, remember, I was one of those idiot writers who thought the more adjectives I put in a sentence, the better, which I think I'm still fighting against. I'm still fighting against that. It's yeah. so hard because you want to show off. When you learn a lot of words when you're yeah. a kid, you get rewarded for it. You know, you want to like put them in yeah. everything. And one of my teachers, bless her, I think Miss Bell, gave me grief about it. And um, and so I remember like writing a note and saying Hemingway's overrated. And like slipping it under her door because she wanted us to write more like Hemingway. And now I'm like, what an idiot. You know, really, <laughs> really like I would kill to write like Hemingway. Uh, yeah. 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 So that's the thing I regret. That's Yeah, that's that's a pretty uh, – did she respond to that? I, it was anonymous. I mean, uh, I, was, oh, like, I did it cowardly. She probably knew it was me, but yeah. That's funny. So yeah. w- what happened when you went to college? Or Did you major in like literature or – I uh, know I started off as uh, photography. Oh, okay. Yeah, my first semester. And then I switched, which I'm really glad I switched because I entered school kind of the last year that you were really doing a lot of where photography meant, you know, 35 millimeter, developing your own film, you know, being in the darkroom all the time. We had a darkroom in my house when I was a kid, mm. or we got one when I was in high school because I was really into photography. And, um, you know, so I'd always be developing photos in my garage. And then. You know, immediately after I would have graduated college, all of that was obsolete. I think I started right before photography became Photoshop and digital and like a whole new way of doing things. I would have had this really outdated education. Right. But part of my interest in photography feels like it was just related to everything else, which is I was really interested in subliminal advertising. Oh. That was always one of my passions with photography was like, what messages can you get in this photo? Like... How can you affect what people think when they see this image? And I was just interested in that kind of vague concept, and I didn't really know exactly what the other part of it was. I thought maybe it was like psychology. Hmm. So I was a psychology major for like a month, and I hated that. And then I was sociology for like a month, and I was like, no, that's not really it. A lot of changing. Yeah, freshman year, I changed my major like three times, that's great. four times. Were you in a dorm? Yeah, I was in the dorm. Yeah, great, great times. I liked it, yeah. yeah. Totally the thing you, did you, how many years did you just do it for that first year? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I got like got, a little apartment yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly the same thing. It was it, nice it, It's though. a one-year thing. Yeah, I you can't, bond. Yeah, you can't go back again though. You have to do it just so you understand dorm movies and yeah. what it's like to be stuck with a roommate. And yeah. We had a weird deal where we had one of those suites where it was like two bedrooms in one room and then a shared bathroom and then two bedrooms in the next one. Oh, yeah. And one of the girls like moved for some reason and then the other girl like ran away from school and never came back 
So, so you, guys, you guys each had your own room? Basically. Like, we, ba- we had a party room, essentially. Right. And she was always at her boyfriend, so it was kind of like I just had a room, oh, like two rooms. It was amazing. This is good. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> but it, yeah, we would just go crazy. So what was freshman year besides changing the majors? What was that like? You know, I really liked it a lot. It was, I moved to Oklahoma. That's where I went to school. Okay. So um, not that far away. Not that far. It was like a seven hour drive. Right. But enough that like, there's enough distance from parents. Like the seven yeah. hour drive is kind of a pain in the ass for them to make. Oh, totally. My parents rule was that they didn't want me anywhere near home. They mm. wanted me to get out. So I didn't, I wasn't like even really encouraged at all to apply for like to ut i didn't apply to ut or anything in texas because it was always like Mm -hmm. i was just raised being like you were getting the fuck out of here (laughs) so you changed your major three times yeah i wound up with anthropology which is what i figured was actually what i wanted to do by the end of freshman year you were like uh you you majored in anthropology yeah by the end of the freshman year i was a double major in anthropology and film studies okay because i figured out film studies the second half of this of the year what made that happen well, it was weird. I realized what I liked about anthropology, and I think I would have been an anthropology major even earlier if I had known what it was. I didn't really know what it was, that it was just the study of people and the study of like how this culture relates pe- to people, which I thought might have been psychology, and that was too specific, and then I mm. thought might be so sociology, but that stuff is all statistics. It's anthropology that's like more narratives and cultures and embedding yourself and really understanding how people think and that's Mm. always been the thing i was most interested in like even with subliminal advertising there's like this weird through line of how does coca-cola steer what people think Mm. and i'm just fascinated in that and then my sophomore my no my spring semester freshman year i took a class called films and culture of the great depression and it was just a random elective and my teacher who was amazing joanna rapp she's still there um, she's related to Harry Rapp, who was one of the founders of, I think, MGM. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's his granddaughter. Uh, she said, oh, well, here's this thing. You know, the Great Depression happens, and culture reflects that in gangster movies. And then FDR gets an elected, and he goes to Hollywood, and he says, I want the culture to feel more optimistic. Can we stop making gangster movies, and can we start making like comedies and musicals and Shirley Temple and this idea that I'd never really thought of before, you know, hit me that movies are our culture and that basically film studies and anthropology are the same thing. Mm. And anthropology felt a little limited in that they really just like studying cultures that are different from us. They're like going to, you know, Papua New Guinea and looking at them with this detachment. But I felt like we could do the same thing through film here in America. And so More I wanted or less to- detached though. I guess a little bit of both. It felt like, why are we so able to extrapolate all this stuff from a basket in Papua New Guinea and we're not turning that on ourselves? Mm. And then you get older and you read more film criticism and you're like, oh, people were doing that. But I thought I was brilliant at 18. Like, oh, wait, this is anthropology. You were, I'm sure you were. You were well, smart. I was a pretentious asshole. That's what we're establishing. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> That's what I hope people take away from the first part of this conversation. Is that oh, Yeah. You're a pretentious asshole. I'm glad people didn't meet me when I was 18. I was the worst. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. And then freshman year, I just, that was it. And I added a minor in American history. And those three things just kind of, they're like my unofficial film critic degree. So you feel like you needed to get a PhD to just like, cause you need that to be successful is just a yeah, prerequisite? Just, I guess this is, I guess this is what it's like when you grow up you know, Republican, or in my case, Democrat. You, know, you just grow up a thing, and you don't always question it. And I grew up Democrat, and I'm glad I did. But right. 
you know, I never had that moment of questioning it. And it's just, or like your religion that you grew up with, you didn't question. I guess in my case, I questioned the religion, but I didn't ever question the PhD. It mm-hmm. was just one of those facts. Like, yeah. this is what you will do. You know, this you, is, see, and this is a reoccurring thing for you. We're like, you got to do this, you got to do this. And these are like the necessary <laughs> steps to like live life. Yeah, I just thought everybody had a PhD. That makes me sound so weird, but like... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any of this. Yeah, that's, my parents were just very smart. Like, yeah. my mom likes to tell me that she has 170 IQ. I don't, she's never, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> that's what she tells me. That's what I grew up with. 170 IQ, what's yours? Uh, It's lower than that. Yeah, I never, I never <laughs> took that. Really? No, it's... Wow, my mom was making me take IQ tests but when I'm like was, four. Yeah, she was also writing the SAT. I know she was. It was weird. I took. I had to take a standardized test to get into preschool. This, this was my childhood. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. It didn't seem weird at the time. But it created a smart person, so that's good. Hopefully, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. That's. I mean, my parents were both just the valedictorians and mm. the whole thing, and I think I was a lab experiment. So yeah, PhD was just always a thing I was supposed to do. So when you're like nearing college, senior year, are you thinking, oh fuck, I have to go? do more school yeah i was thinking well where am i going to go to film school and i was thinking well there's usc and there's madison and i hate cold weather so probably usc and then some weird stuff happened like the very beginning of my senior year Hmm. or right before what happened well yeah all right don't freak out on me when i tell you the story of august 2001 because like, it can like, sound weird. Like you want the people listening or me not to freak out on Just you? Just everybody. Everyone. Okay. Okay. So August 2001 started with like, I think the first day someone stole my laptop, okay. which had all of my writing I was going to use to apply for grad school. Because I went to school for five years because I had a five-year scholarship. And mm-hmm. so my parents were like, dick around, take every class you feel like taking, study whatever you want to study, that's study great, abroad, like spend a, time What a great school. thing to have. Oh, yeah. it was, it's the best thing ever. Yeah. I was so glad about it. I wouldn't have realized how lucky it was at the time. Mm. But, but they were like, take it you didn't save the writing all. on the laptop? No. It was all gone. There was, like, no, there was no Dropbox. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, it was this huge old laptop and someone stole it from my work. They from I worked at the school library. And I was just devastated because my whole plan had been, you know, take all your writing classes the semester before, which I had done. Right. You know, write all your huge papers about everything. And then fall semester, you're going to apply for grad school. But I lost everything. And I remember calling my dad and like just in tears, like right. my life was over. That, that I've made that call. Yeah. You're just, I don't know what I'm going to do with my future now. It was horrible. And then a couple of days later, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Jesus Christ. And then he actually ended up dying like a, a little bit less, less than two weeks later. He wound up dying like August 13th. And it was just like, boom. And then, oh God, see, this is why I don't want you to freak out because it's going to get weird. And then, well, like, I'm freaking out only because you're like smiling right now. Well, it's been a long time. Okay. And you kind of get used to the story. And I think you smile out of nervousness because you realize you have the potential to make people really uncomfortable. No, you're not making me uncomfortable. Okay, good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, but he just died like as soon as he would, he was diagnosed, basically. And then while I was gone at the funeral, my cat ran away. And then when my boyfriend came down for the funeral, he freaked out the night before and like cheated on me because I think he just couldn't handle the responsibility of taking care of a girlfriend whose dad had just died. So he just blew it up. And then on also on the way to the funeral, my roommate was driving my car so I'd have it, and she totaled my car somewhere three hours north of where I lived. 
And that was just August. And I started, I went back to school like about a week later um, when the semester started, just gutted. And then the next month, September 11th happened. And I was like, oh, fuck this. It was just like this crazy month to month, like five weeks of insanity. So instead of applying for grad school in the fall, I was like, oh, the world is going to end. That was my mindset. Yeah. Like everything's over. You know, there's no point in grad school. I may as well just do whatever I really want to do. And maybe I don't want to go to grad school. And I realized I didn't want to be a professor. I think I just always assumed I had to be a professor, which sounds weird, again, coming out of my mouth. But like, I would see my professors who were some of the most brilliant people I knew, and they had no control over where they wanted to live. You know, brilliant people living in Oklahoma and knowing as great as Oklahoma is, they'd probably rather be in a place with like more art house theaters Mm. and better restaurants and more to do, but they were in Oklahoma because you can't get academic jobs that easily and thinking, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be told where to live. I want to pick where I want to live. And that's never going to happen if I go into academia. Mm. So that was when I started to think it's silly. Like I didn't ever think that film criticism was something legitimate And the joke I always say is that I grew up in San Antonio where a film critic would judge things by jalapenos. And so I thought film (laughs) critics were just like, I thought that was what you did if you didn't become a professor. That's not, I just sound like such a snob. I sound insane. You don't sound insane. (laughs) But that was when I started thinking. How could that not be funny to people? That's incredible. (laughs) That's so. It just kind of dawned on me that semester. That if you become a film critic, not only do you get to pick where you live, well, you have to live in LA, really, or like San Francisco or New York. Okay, so you don't totally get to pick where you live, but I loved LA. (laughs) Uh, But you also, you don't just, you know, wall yourself away writing books. You get to engage in the conversation about what's happening in film every week. And that was when I really, really got into Pauline Kael and I started to think, oh my God, there's so much you could do with film criticism that I never took seriously because I was just on this academia trip that I didn't ever question. So you had about like a decade's worth of terrible things. Have been in about a month. Yeah. Yeah. I've had really good luck ever since then. I'm sure because it's all gone. Like you like yeah. all the bad things that happened to most people like those things are spread out yeah no and And i'm leaving out like that i mean don't leave anything out the rest of that month i in september because of all the stress i got an ulcer i've never had an ulcer before they're horrible yeah the little things i'm leaving out are dumb like my roommate got me a new cat and then the cat had ringworm so (sighs) everybody in the house got ringworm and then this is all september and then I ended up like in October accidentally running over the cat because it, no. it was terrible. I came out of my house. This is October. I turned the car on to, and I had gotten a package. My aunt and uncle had sent me a gift and it was on my front door and I saw it when I came out to get in the car. And so I turned the car on and I was sitting in the car opening the package. And while I was doing it, the kitten crept up in the wheel of the car and I didn't know because I was inside the car. Right. And it just, I think it thought it likes the warmth or the vibration. And when I backed out, I just had, I ran over the kitten. 
it's it, this, it was the worst semester this is terrible. of my life this is really bad it was bad my boyfriend ended up like getting together with the girl he cheated with yeah. cheated on me with i assume that didn't work out they wound up having a kid and then getting what? divorced i think they this is gonna sound awful i feel like part of the reason they wound up having a kid is because they got like ostracized when everybody realized what happened oh this was kind of a bad punchline to this story like his mom was mad at him like everyone was just mad at him so he and this girl were like, well, we're going to make this work and prove everyone wrong. And right. then they had a kid about a year later. And yeah, so that was, everything came really weird. <laughs> yeah, this is bad. Out of that month. Yeah, but it's. But you found Paul and Kale. Yeah. And it, but to your point, that changes you a lot. You know, I think yeah. I was. Well, it's also, I think what I find most interesting, besides the fact that it's all like in quick succession is that it's coming at a very um, moment, like a moment of instability. Like you're leaving yeah. college. Yeah. And now you get to figure out like, what the fuck am I doing? I had five, you know, you had five years of, I live here, school's paid, I have this scholarship and I'm doing this and I'm studying and all that. And then now you have to like go do life. Yeah. And then all this happens like the moment you like take one step out into life, like all this and... And it's I'm hard. a little surprised, like, that you're still here. Like, I don't know how you, like, I don't know if I'm strong enough to, to get past that. I think everyone is, which is why it's kind of good to get tested that way. Then you know that you can. That's, I like, that's optimism on your part. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Well, what's weird, too, is, you know, I don't want to undersell the idea. And I'm so curious to hear about other people who were in their senior year of college when September 11th happened. You really thought the world is going to change. I feel like there's a weird glitch in my year where a lot of people didn't go to grad school because all of us thought maybe there was going to be a huge war and people would get drafted. We didn't know. Yeah, I almost didn't go to second grade. Ex- well, yeah, see, you're that young. That's crazy. Like, September 11th was my roommate's <laughs> birthday, my roommate who got me the cat, my roommate that I killed, my roommate who totaled my car. And it was her birthday that morning, and I woke up, and I had stayed up really late the night before, September 10th, making her an ice cream cake. This before or after she told your car? This was after. This was like the wow, month after she told my car. you're a good fucking friend, and you're making her... Like, oh, this girl's crazy. Yeah. But, um... Is there a chance she's listening? No, not at all. Like, she lucked out. Like, if she had told my car any other time but August 2001, <laughs> I think it would have been a problem. But it was like the least... Yeah thing that we cared about yeah. and then well my dad was dead so i had his car like, it was just like okay fine i have a car and if you just we let her get totally off the hook with it's it so strange it's so weird she'd never nothing ever happened with that but um but yeah so i stayed up late to make her this ice cream cake and then you wake up in the morning and it was september 11th and we had told everybody to meet us at the park in the afternoon and it, you know this was slightly pre-cell phone i had a cell phone a lot of my friends didn't have a cell phone she didn't have a cell phone so we all just met in the park anyways because we didn't know what to do and classes were canceled. And I remember sitting there in the park with this ice cream cake and it's melting and we're all just terrified. And we're looking up at the sky. Where are you right here? Is Oklahoma. It, you're in Oklahoma. We're in a park in Oklahoma. And we're just looking at our male friends and we're thinking, are you guys going to have to go to war? And it was terrifying. And so yeah. a lot of us didn't go to grad school. It was the weirdest year That's so to strange. graduate. I've never heard that before. And really? I, I never heard that um like people didn't go to grad school or like that li- I understood I guess I understand the idea intellectually that like life halted. Yeah. But 
the idea that that changed the trajectory for so many people to continue their education or to yeah. make, make their next step. I mean, maybe it's just anecdotally with my friends, but you know, it's the fall. This is when you apply for next year, right? And no, none of us did. No, no, none of us did. It didn't feel like there was a point. Yeah, it was like, what's the point of grad school if the world's over? It, it sounds and strange. you fully believed like that. This is this is ending. We thought it was World War Three, you know. Or I definitely thought it was World War Three. And it, we it, we had just come out of like the crazy election, like the Bush election, yeah. and it just felt like the world was insane. You know, my dad sent me tons of forwards making fun of you know the Bush Supreme Court thing, mm-hmm. and it just felt like anything could happen. It felt like you know, you grow up expecting one arc for the world. And then all of a sudden, like at this last moment, you know, your last year of college, like the railroad got blown up. And then it feels like the railroad maybe kind of got put in place a couple years later. Mm. But that, like that one year I graduated, I think the track was just like demolished. Right. And so the demolished track led you to writing about movies? Yeah, weirdly. That seems about right, though, given given this (laughs) profession. Well, yeah, because one thing that happened was there was this critic I used to love who wrote for CNN.com, and he was one of the few critics I read. His name was Paul Tatera. And what happened is he panned Black Hawk Down around this time. Not a good movie. Not a good movie, but in a moment where we were all talking about the troops, he got all this hate mail for panning Black Hawk Down, tons of hate mail, and CNN ended up, the story I heard is that they ended up firing him. Mm -hmm. Kind of a weird foreshadowing to you on Lone Survivor. Yeah, and and the idea that a film critic could be fired for talking about the real world as reflected in a movie all of a sudden made film criticism seem, like, noble. Yeah, noble. Like, your writing writing is not only substantive, but potentially impactful. Yeah, you're talking about the world. You have an excuse to talk about the world. So you never wrote about film in college, except for, like, your papers. Yeah, except for my papers, I did like long treatises on you know yeah. Asian American characters in eighties films yeah. and how it related to those you know rivet, the Japan auto crisis. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. That was my thesis. But, but what was the la- what was the last part of the thesis? Oh, about how the you know the rise of Toyota and Honda in the eighties and our fear that Japan was going to overtake us in the world market, particularly in automobiles, okay. led to racist eighties characters who are Asian in movies like Revenge of the Nerds and Sixteen Candles. That mm. it was all of us taking out our aggression on Japan. Uh-huh. In eighties movies, That's a pretty good thesis. Yeah, I believe in it really strongly. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought I was going to be writing stuff like that, uh, which in a way I guess you are still. You know, kinda. we get to do that still. So you, how quickly did you transition? Like, when did what was your first gig? Um, pretty quick. The spring semester, I started writing. Well, that I ended up taking spring semester a class in film criticism. Suddenly, we had one. We never really had mm. one before. But we had one that was like a kind of a rotating elective. So I took that, and then I also started writing film reviews for the school paper because I knew I would need those to move to L.A. Mm. So I this knew is I in your to final year. Yeah, this is my spring semester Okay. when I realized, like, this is what you're going to do. And I'd been visiting L.A. a lot because uh, my friends were slightly older, some of them. So they had moved to L.A. before I got here. And I would come out and visit, and I was—I knew I wanted to live here. I knew this was my place. I just it, well, felt at home. I imagine it felt wildly different from Oklahoma. It did, but it weirdly feels a lot like San Antonio because they're both oh. huge cities that live on tacos. <laughs> you know, they, it takes like an hour to get anywhere. It, they're set up very similar. It was just a cooler version of San Antonio, mm-hmm. 
where you know, we even have a, a we even have our own shitty river you know it's, <laughs> it's true. yeah it felt it felt at home like i'm used to being in cities with a lot of spanish and with you know a lot of culture and la has a ton of culture oh it definitely does so you like visited here and thought okay i can i can move here yeah and i would read the la weekly you know i remember sitting in the back of a car because we would drive here mostly from oklahoma it's like about a 22 hour trip yeah and I would sit in the back of the car when I wasn't driving and I would read the LA Weekly, like cover to cover, all the capsule reviews, all the film reviews, all the art stuff. And it was big back then. They used to run like yeah. tons of theater reviews, yeah. everything. And I just, I loved that tone. You know, it was like snarky and smart and funny and really knowledgeable. And it just made sense. It felt like I wanted to write there mm. specifically. And then what happened is in my spring semester, a writer who is still great and he's in Boston right now, Gerald Perry, he came to my town to give a writing award to somebody else, not me. I don't even know what the writing award was for, but because he was a film critic and I was the only person who wanted to be a film critic, my head of the department was like, oh, get lunch with Amy, which was great. And so Gerald and I got lunch and I remember we fought about Amelie. He liked it and I thought it was like crap. I was again, I was still kind of an asshole. It's like, no, fuck that movie, whatever. <laughs> Do you think you're still an asshole? A little bit, probably, yeah. Yeah, we, well, I think all of us critics have to be. We have to be certain that we're right all the time. <laughs> you're, if you're not certain that you're right, then why are people reading you? Yeah, I don't know. You're, they're not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so he ended up connecting me to an internship at the LA Weekly. Uh, and so wow, he... Wow, that's, that's a good start. Yeah, just it was like very random. He called me a month later and he was like, you know, I know a guy at the LA Weekly. If I made this happen for you, would you move out to LA immediately? Uh, right after graduation uh, yeah of course absolutely yeah <laughs> so that's that was he's the, i mean we all have people that i think were the number one person who helped us mm -hmm. and just by that phone call yeah like gerald changed the whole course of my life yeah so day one at la weekly yeah day one at la weekly film intern what are you doing i am doing actually day one at la weekly was a, f a few months after manola had left to go to the la times mm. And so they put me in her chair, which was crazy, like in her in her cubicle next to Ella Taylor, who's great and reviews movies for NPR right now and teaches here at USC. And they said, well, we're going to need a new film critic. And I was like, me? And they're like, haha, no, <laughs> fuck you, go away. They were like, here's a stack of applications of people who wanted to be film critics. They sent us in their stuff. They're like, do you want to go through them and see if anybody's good? And I was like, what? I'm like, that's... That's incredible. Crazy. So do you remember the people that were in there? Yeah, there are some people I knew, some people I didn't, some people who were crazy, some people who couldn't write with anything. Mm. I went through, I, Paul Tatera was in there. I found um, maybe four or five, I handed them over. They never read them. You know? Really? Who were I they? I don't think so. I have no idea really know. that much anymore. This is 2002. But what was really chilling about it was that some of the letters were years old. You know, people had just applied before Manola even left, you know, just in case, or maybe to be like a freelancer. Right. And you realized, oh, you can't get hired in this world. You know, like writing a letter isn't how this works. No. And that was the wake up call of being like, oh, you can't just write a letter because no one will read it. And mm. then they'll just send it to some 22 year old who just showed up from Oklahoma. And they'll be like, oh, why don't you read these? It'll give you something to do. And that's how that's how it works. Like, oh, no, that doesn't work at all. Yeah. It, that was terrifying. Was that I, a crushing realization? Yeah, I thought, oh, I'm never going to get to be a film critic. Wow. If that's how this and works. And you had just moved here. Yeah, like that week. My God, the first week, your spirits were already <laughs> yeah. fucking crushed. I was like, oh, this doesn't, there is no template for this. Mm. You know, it's not like a normal job. 
And then they ended up hiring Scott Foundus, who wasn't in that stack. You know, he was just a smart guy that they knew and respected. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay, this is how it works. Yeah. Yeah. There is no map. So you finished your internship at LA Weekly? Yeah, they really had nothing for me to do there. It was kind of just like a kindness. Yeah, it was a it was a get you in the door thing. Right. And, and, it, let, and it did, right? Yeah, they let me write a, a couple of film reviews. I remember my first one was for Little Secrets, a movie with Evan Rachel Wood. Never saw that. It's crazy. Evan Re- Rachel Wood opens up this business. People, I think it's like people pay her a quarter to tell her a secret that she'll never <laughs> tell anyone. And so she's like for people who are just bursting. With with secrets they need to tell, and I wrote a capsule review, like two hundred words of it. And you remember the first line? No, but it's. I think it is on Rotten Tomatoes. I remember having a, a thing on Rotten Tomatoes and being like, "Oh my god, I just moved here. I have a review on Rotten Tomatoes." There you are. It's an there exciting thing that that happens. I remember that. Yeah, and then I didn't. I don't think I got another review on there for like seven years. <laughs> but I was like, "Wow, there I did it. I did it." So what happens in between you leaving LA Weekly? Like, then what? Oh, well, I wound up kind of staying at LA Weekly. What happened was the theater editor, because uh, part of what I did, everybody took pity on me. They were trying to find me little jobs to stay alive. Because they was, liked you? Or maybe I was just annoying. I don't know. But I was, like, sleeping on a living room floor because I didn't have money for my own bedroom. Right. That kind of a thing. And That's a likable trait in people. <laughs> yeah. Like sleeping on floors. And I think I was the only intern in the building. You know, so I was just this kid running around from Oklahoma being like, I'm from Oklahoma. Yeah. And Did they, you have an accent? No. No, thank God. But they're all these older hipster types. Yeah. You know, like people who had been at the Weekly since the 80s, because this is before the big turnover at the Weekly. So they were all Hipsterism the original Hipsterism is a big people. part of your life, apparently. But I get, yeah. like, not your choice. Well, they were like the cool people from the 80s who were in all the cool bands and knew right. everything. You know, people like Stephen Mikulin, who's a god, you know, he was there. And my editor was uh, Stephen Lee Morris in the theater section. So they were finding me jobs like filing photos in the basement. And that's cool. They taught me how to proofread. So I was like, proofreading, and this is all like 25 bucks here, 30 bucks here just to pay rent. And mm-hmm. I was on food stamps. They were trying to like help keep me alive. So I wasn't just only on food stamps. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so it was like going through a press release or something. I saw that Sebastian Bach was going to be in Jekyll and Hyde, somewhere in Orange County. He was going to be in the stage production of Jekyll and Hyde. And I loved heavy metal. So I went to the theater editor. Oh, yeah, I still do. Really? Yeah. So I asked the theater editor, like, oh, my God, did you know that Sebastian Bach is going to be in Jekyll and Hyde? I was like, this is the biggest fucking thing. I was so excited about it. And he was like, oh, do you want to interview him? And so he let me interview him, and then he would just let me Is that me your start. first interview? Mm-hmm, with Sebastian Bach. And then he just let me start writing theater reviews. And mm-hmm. so that's what I ended up doing for 10 years, basically, is writing theater reviews mm-hmm. at the LA Weekly. Right. Like for, you know, $79 a pop. Right. Yeah. So this is from 2002? Yeah. To like 2011 or 12. I think I did it 10 years exactly. But you had haven't you written, hadn't you written about movies prior to like 2011 or 12? Yeah, yeah, I started to phase in more movies yeah. towards around probably probably it probably wasn't 7 years. It was probably like 2007 or 8. I started writing for the Inland Empire Weekly and LA City Beat. I got my right. foot in the door at a couple places. Right. And just worked and then Box Office Magazine and What happened to the Box Office Magazine? I think they're still around. I don't know. Uh-uh. They're not around. Well, oh. you, you, I mean, this is like the type of research I did at two in the morning. I oh. I googled it because you had put it on like 
was like, I searched your name. I was like, Amy Nicholson. See what happens. And like on the first page, at the bottom of the first page, there's like a Google Plus account of yours. Oh. And you're like, Box Office Magazine, I worked hard on this. Here's the oh, app. Oh, weird. Here's the app. And uh, I clicked it, and I didn't like, nah, I don't think so. Yeah, we launched, I was the editor of Box Office uh, after a while, and we launched an iPad magazine. Yeah, I, ca- I vaguely, was, wasn't was like David Ehrlich part of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, David those. Ehrlich, I remember he we, he was at South By, and when our critic who was at South By couldn't review something, and he was like, my buddy can do it, and it was David Ehrlich, and I yeah. remember reading David Ehrlich and being like, who is this genius? Yeah, yeah smart, so, smart guy. He's brilliant, he's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah, so we, I was like, as soon as we had money to hire people, I was like, David Ehrlich, he's number one on my list. He's, uh, I loved him. Yeah. And so then you did the theater stuff. You started writing more film reviews. Yeah. And then Box Office ended up taking over just enough that I had to, like, I had to, I couldn't do theater anymore. Mm-hmm. Which was kind of, what happened is I went to go see A Christmas Carol. I was, like, assigned to go review A Christmas Carol. And it was, like, the 10th time I'd been sent to go review A Christmas Carol. You and already just, reviewed it. Yeah, Nine I've reviewed it so many times. And every Christmas, you have to go review it at least once or twice. It's Jeez. like every film critic or every theater critic is like, they do 12 productions of it. So it's like everybody kind of gets sent to see a different one. And I just, I snapped. I was like, I can't review A Christmas Carol yeah. anymore. I'm done. Hmm. What was the first film review in those years? That you were like, oh, I got something. I can do this. This is good. I don't know. I always think about my college review of Wind Talkers which I feel like I've never written anything as good as that. I feel like everything I've done since Where then can one read that? has been downhill somewhere on the OU Daily. Maybe it's not even that good. There are a few things I regret. I was like mean to an actor in it in a way I don't like being now. It mm-hmm. was, you know, it's a Nicolas Cage movie. Right. I think I said he looked like a piece of boiled pork. Like I just made fun of his face wow. and I would never do that now. Like that's too mean. You couldn't do it now. You couldn't do it now. It's, it's cruel. It's not fair. Yeah. I was an asshole, but like I remember looking up Navajo for my lead. I was like, I'm going to do my, because it's about Navajo translators. And I remember like the Navajo world word was Bill Nehe. And I don't remember what it meant, but I was like so proud of myself for finding Navajo as a lead. Mm-hmm. That That's what I was just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was a good review. It's the one I really, I, I, I want to still be the critic because the initiative to look up words in Navajo yeah. for a lead. Yeah, you could do that when you went back to LA Weekly. Yeah. You you could have done that, I guess. Probably. I feel like that set a standard for myself. I want to make sure <laughs> I don't ever like I feel like I I when I'm when I fail that standard, I'm very aware of it. When did you get that position? It was after Karina left, right? Yeah, it was after Karina left. Yeah, yeah. she left. Also Karina Longworth. The best. Like we're talking about like some people don't know that. Karina Longworth. Yeah, she's great. I owe so much to Karina Longworth. Yeah. She is, yeah, like, I don't think I'd be writing as much if it weren't for Karina. Yeah, she's incredible. She's incredible. She's the one who connected me to my Tom Cruise book. She's the one who kind of put in a good word for me at the Weekly. Like, I feel like I've never bought Karina enough beers to make up for it. And I buy her, I buy her, well, I buy her a fair amount of whiskey. She doesn't really like beer. Uh, But even so, there's not enough. Whiskey to be bought. Yeah, for how important Karina Longworth has been to me. When you get to that LA Weekly job like back there after having done odd job yeah. and did the theater stuff and you did intern and you're doing the thing you want to do are you just over the moon yeah i mean the crazy thing was they announced the la weekly job 
when they announced that I had it, I started at the end of July, but they announced it on July 1st, which was the day that I had moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. Like, I moved to L.A. July 1st, 2002, and they announced I had the weekly job July 1st, 2013. Wow. And I remember so they just... So it literally took just over a decade. Yeah. But just, there was this weird symmetry to it where it just always felt faded mm. in a way that felt cursed almost. Like, <laughs> I moved to L.A. to get that job, and then, then what happens? Like, I hadn't really thought past that. Like, oh, God. Like, I think I... Yeah, it it's weird. It's weird when you... It's weird when you realize you've had such a good stroke of luck and then you think, is everything else downhill? Or like, what do I do after this? Or mm-hmm. what am I just putting off the inevitable moment of failure? Like, how did I get the thing that I wanted? Do you feel like you're constantly waiting for the moment of failure? Well, I think my two goals were that I wanted to be the LA Weekly Film Critic and then, and now I'm going to jinx myself, I wanted to be New Yorker by 50. That was like the long-term goal. Mm-hmm. And if I cross 50 and I haven't gotten there, like getting uh-huh. the LA Weekly job, I, now I'm not, now I'm like set up for failing uh-huh. for New York you know, by 50. Not to skip ahead too yeah. much, but like when David Denby left, I remember talking to people and I was like, there's like three people they could hire. Three people that they should hire either Wesley Morris, Dana Stevens, or Amy. Oh, God. (laughs) Wesley has a fucking Pulitzer, dude. I know. He came on the podcast. He was like episode four. Oh, he's the best. (laughs) He's the best. Yeah. He, he, he's one of those, you know, we got writers in this business that I think of as like carrots and we're the greyhounds and we're like, how do I get to be as good as As Manola or Wesley or Stephanie Zaharik? But when that, when that job opened up, it didn't really open up. No, because then they never hired anyone. They never hired anyone. They never hired anyone. But like, in your head, you, you applied. I know you applied. Well, I don't even think they had applications. Okay. I think right away. But you sent like, an email of some sort. No. Really? Uh. Uh-uh. You didn't I, even send an email to like Richard Brody saying, "Hey." Well, it's because it's also you know maybe they should hire Brody. Brody's brilliant. I mean, I wish I could write that good. Mm. I feel like I don't know. I feel like right now as a writer, I'm still just trying to do push-ups to mm. get ready. For being that good. I, I still read Pauline Kale, and I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever be that good. No, she's amazing. And it's, I don't know how we get that good. Like, well, that's get, the problem uh, as a writer is I don't know how we get better. Will you continue writing? I mean, yeah. what's what I like is that like you, you do have one of those two goals. Like, you did it. And then you didn't want it anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I love that paper so much. I don't think there was anything harder than leaving the weekly. Why did you leave? I wasn't ever planning on it. It was weird. When MTV called, I didn't know it was for MTV. It was just Dan Fearman, who I love. Right. You know? And he, he was, was at Grantland. He was at Grantland. Right? Yeah. And sometimes they would talk about me going over to Grantland, and I'd be like, I love the weekly. Right. That gigantic, gigantic thing coming by. Plus, like, Wesley kind of had that. Yeah, he already had, they had it. They had Sean Fantasy, and they, have plenty, they had plenty of there really so good many film good writers. There so many good yeah, it, I thought I was going to be at the Weekly for 10 years, mm. and that was my plan. I wanted to be there until I felt like I was ready to to maybe do, like, I don't know. I mean, because everybody wants one of those jobs where you feel like it won't ever get lost. You know, you can go back and read the New York Times or the LA Times from 50 years ago, and you can see what film critics say. Mm. And I think that's kind of one of that's one of my long-term goals, is I want to be at one of those places where, in 100 years, wherever I write for is smart and, like, they, ha- they have the resources that every all of the all of their work is there. Yeah. Because you know how frustrating it is. You write for the web and something can vanish. It has. It and does. It has. And it does. Yeah. 
I'm so scared of looking back at some of my stuff and seeing if it's gone. And yeah. It probably is. And that's, I can't think it's like a death. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying, I think the goal is always to get to something where you feel like even unless there's a nuclear event, somebody <laughs> will be archiving that, that, okay. that site. So MTV calls you though. Or yeah. Dan calls you rather. Yeah. Dan calls me. And I thought it was for Grantland again. And I was like, nope, dude, come on. He's like, you guys, you guys don't need me over there. And then he just, he said MTV. And it, I had never crossed my mind before. Right. Because why would it? You know, it, MTV's, MTV's really different now than it was even six months ago. Because they're, they're redoing it from scratch, really. And it had never really dawned on me until he said it. He, he, he called me about the MTV job. And he called me like right when I was about to drive to Napa Valley to go to a film festival. Mm. It was in the car. I had like seven hours to think about it. Jesus. You know, it was it was like perfect timing right. to sit in the car and be like, "Oh my god!" And th- there was something about just the words MTV. Yeah, I grew up watching MTV. Right. And he was like, "We have the chance to make this brand cool again." And suddenly that meant the world to me. I didn't realize how much it meant to me. Right. Like MTV raised me. Everything uh-huh. I know, so much of what I, so my hair metal stuff, all of my heavy metal stuff, so much of everything that I feel like made me me came from watching a lot of MTV. Yeah. And then suddenly thinking like, he's hiring all these people I think are some of the smartest people I know, and we might have a chance to make MTV cool again. It, it was you crazy. Could, you couldn't pass that up. You you couldn't. Yeah. You just couldn't. From the outsider perspective, when that was happening, I was like, what is going on? It's bizarre, It right? was so inexplicable and strange, and you're hiring all these people that I that I like, and I'm like, wait. The smartest people in the world. Yeah. Like, there are writers I can't wait for people to start really cluing into. We have this guy, Caleb Horton, yeah. who, if people Google Caleb Horton, Caleb with a K, genius. Like, this is the guy... This is a guy who I think we're going to be reading in a hundred years. This is the guy who's really? going to be like the Suds Turkle of the future. The Caleb Horton blows me out of out of all the water. Like he 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 blows my mind mm. when I read Caleb Horton. Yeah, and we have Suds Turkle. That's a high. He writes politics for us, and he's yeah. a genius. Yeah. He's uh, to work with people like that. I just Carvel yeah. Wallace, who lives in San Francisco with you, he's amazing. Oh, see, I didn't I didn't know this. You're, you're giving me. Yeah, Carvel Wallace. He's great. He writes a lot about like jazz and pop culture. Uh-huh. We have, I don't right. know. yeah, you, had, you have Jessica Hopper and yeah, Jessica uh, Hopper Jamel Smith and like Anna Marie Cox all doing this, politics. It goes on and on. Uh, it goes on and on, and it's just I didn't understand it. I still don't really understand it. Like, tell me how, like, what is it like over there? What is it going on? It's exciting as a hell. Like, Basically, more excited. You seem more excited. By this than anything you've done before. It feels like it feels like Dan Fearman, the guy who called me, who co-founded Grantland with Bill Simmons, right. who's brilliant, has been around forever. He was at GQ, he was at EW. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And it feels like MTV gave him a chunk of money and said, "Hire your dream team." <laughs> and the dream team he's hired is just mental. Yeah. It feels like these are the people, just even to be associated with these people is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, just to be like in that fold. Yeah. And then to have, you know, the MTV brand combined with that, to not even be starting it from scratch, but to have the idea of, I guess, like rewriting over it. Right. You're starting a new kind of. Yeah. And you're like, 
I don't know. If it, yeah, it's kind of, it is rebranding. I would say what you guys are doing, especially the type of writing you're doing, and and all the people that Dan has hired. Yeah, it seems different. It seems wildly different than my perception of MTV. Yeah, I think what they realized it, for me, like MTV, was a place that in the '90s started a lot of conversations. Hmm. You, what I always think about is when the very first Real World came out. That group of housemates painted the 1-800 number for Jerry Brown on the wall of their loft. This is when he was running for president. Uh And they were like, we have a candidate. We love him. He's progressive. We are this eclectic group. You know, the first season of The Real World was the most eclectic group ever that they Mm -hmm. ever did. And they used that power of MTV as a megaphone for a progressive political candidate. Mm -hmm. And quickly after that, Real World turned into something else. But that idealism of MTV, the first years of Rock the Vote, the idea of this as a youth brand, okay, the words youth brand like make me shiver, but <laughs> but the idea of using this megaphone that a they have brand. for good, yeah. yeah, and I think they got lost from that for a while, and I think they'd admit it too. Mm. And I think they spent a lot of time like losing their identity. And they, from what I understand, they had this kind of come to Jesus moment about a year ago where they, you know, from internally at the top were like, millennials don't even remember when we were cool. Mm. Like they don't, they were never alive for it. It's, you know, older people who might remember what they used to mean to people. And why don't we just write the kind of writing that those people might like again? Like, mm-hmm. why don't we... We're, I think us at MTV News were sort of the tip of the spear of that. We're right. like the people writing the articles to get people to realize that MTV is changing. And then in the fall, the ne- actual network is going to be launching a bunch of new shows right. that are getting away from... I mean, we can't kill Teen Mom. People love it. But Teen Mom gets a day. And then we get a lot of other cool stuff on top right. of it. And yeah, so, you can't get teen mom. Yeah, I mean, those moms, you know, they need money. So, like, <laughs> and Teen Mom is, I think, the perfect example of MTV because they, it started off as actually a really good service. It started off as 16 and pregnant with them saying, girls, understand if you get pregnant, your boyfriend is probably going to dump you and it's not going to be as fun as you think. And this is how hard it is. It was supposed to be a warning against it. Right. And then it became like, Teen moms, they're in, you know, porn movies. And that, that was never the intention. Mm. You know, good things go awry. Good things go awry. Yeah. Because we didn't talk about your book, but your book is more about, it's yeah. definitely more anthropological. The Tom Cruise thing, I, I when we talked about it, when, when did that come out? Like two, three years ago? Uh, It'll be two years in July. Okay. I remember asking you at the time, has like Tom Cruise reached out at all? Like, no. God, I would love that <laughs> so much. I want to know his response, especially to the piece that is like the one you guys put online about the yeah. Oprah show and all of that and the scream that that assistant heard that day or whatever, whatever his job was. That, that was the lead. It was like, yeah, he yeah. remembers the scream. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's a good lead. I hate when people I know write good leads and I'm like, God damn it. Oh, man, it took so much research to find that lead. Yeah, it's a fucking great lead. And it's a great, yeah. it's a, it's a great piece. Um, I lucked out. Do you know how I found that? That was all luck. I was trying to find anybody who could have been at the Oprah show because what I really wanted was I wanted somebody who was there at the Oprah show when Tom Cruise was there. I spent forever scouring the internet for combinations of Oprah, quote, I was there, quote, Tom Cruise, everything I could find. Buried in some Reddit thread, I found a guy who was like, oh, I was there. And then he wrote me back. I like signed up for Reddit to be like, can you talk to me? (laughs) And he ended up working there and being... The best interview ever. Yeah, that's that was crazy just one of those good like, research right there. That was one of the stroke of luck things. Like 
that he even wrote me back. People don't even, I, I cold email a fair amount of people. Mm. And a lot of times you just get crickets. Right. Oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, oftentimes. When you wrote that book, by the end of it, did you feel like, I understand Tom Cruise. Like, I've never met him. You haven't met him. No, you, never. No one really gets to interview him. He doesn't really do interviews. Yeah, he, he does. does like Jimmy Fallon. Exactly. He shows he, up and he's charming. He, he can he, do the karaoke thing for like yeah. five minutes. And there's no mention of any Scientology or anything. Yeah, which is good because who cares about his religion? I, I don't. I can't care that much. I I don't. Um, I don't care that he's a Scientologist. I care that he is um, condoning the things that happen within Scientology. That, uh, yeah. That uh, that that Al Gibney documentary was particularly troubling yeah. to watch because like he he's like aware of those things. And to me, that's just like kind of gross ignorance that I, he can be a Scientologist. I don't give a shit, but the whole like manual labor thing and all that, yeah. like, I don't know that, that to me was a little, and like having that girl flown out for him because he needed a new wife. I found well, that. How are you going to meet someone when you're Tom Cruise though? I don't know. Tinder? <laughs> no way. <laughs> can you imagine Tom Cruise on Tinder? That's the thing. I, I, no one who has a recognizable face can even go on Tinder. Yeah. I'm not even recognizable and I won't go on Tinder because once I had somebody say, are you the film critic? And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And you just think like, what if there's, you know, aspiring directors and they see me on Tinder and they're like, ha ha, I know something about that critic. Yeah. I'm too paranoid. Yeah, I, can't, I tried it I once can't even and go on I, like, I got off. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I couldn't do it. It's too much. Or there's a hinge where it's like all people oh, who, know you know, is. from Facebook. Oh, it's I, like your friend's friends. Yeah. And I did it for two hours and everyone was an agent. And I was like, nope. Nope, everyone was like an agent or a publicist. It's too close to home. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's okay. So I, I give you uh, the point of I was and that's Tom Cruise. I know it's Tom Cruise and you're Amy, but I, it's just <laughs> like um that deep dive into yeah. his work, into him. Like you really got underneath him. I think that sounds wrong. Jesus Christ, you got <laughs> underneath. Like, yeah, say that in a way that doesn't sound right. Yeah. yeah. You, the, uh, <laughs> God damn it! Um, <laughs> you just you understood him. It seemed like you understood, like you yeah. deep into his mind, like you you understood him. I hope so, or it could be totally wrong. Like you what could if be I totally meet him wrong. and he says like no, but right. it made sense to me from everything I read. Was that type of writing? Did you find that different than the film criticism you do? And it, and like, did you find it more satisfying in a way? I really loved it. Like I'm a research nerd. Right. Either well, most of my reviews I love researching. Even mm. even The Conjuring Two, right. I think I researched the Enfield murder or the Enfield poltergeist for like two hours. Right. You know, m- most of that doesn't even make it into the piece. Is I, that why you and Karina so see eye to eye? I think we both love the research is our favorite part. Right. I almost like the research more than the writing. Mm. And so I'm very happy, like hold up reading a thousand articles about something. You know, it's also procrastination. It's yeah, great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great procrastination. Yeah, but I love. Any excuse to research is like my favorite thing on the planet. Do you think the book turned out well? I hope so. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, Did it get the response you wanted it to? I think so. I mean, I keep my head down a lot. Right. I am mad that like on all of my Amazon reviews, there's like one person who just wrote would be better with a different writer. And it doesn't even, I, I don't think they even wrote it. I read it. I feel like it was like some internet troll left over from, I don't know, maybe the, the Glenn Beck thing or something. They were mm-hmm. just, cause it's a link to it in my Twitter. 
I think they just went there and gave me a one star review, and I'm like, you didn't even read my book. Would have been better with a different writer. Yeah, like that was really all they said, and I was like, what the fuck? Who are you? And they just dinged my reviews. Mm-hmm. But okay. other than that, I think I just yeah, I remember you were pretty because uh, someone was writing a review. It was like in the AV club, and like I was like, oh yeah, I just read the review before interviewing, and you're yeah. like. Sam, don't fucking tell me. Yeah, Sam, don't fucking tell me. And you're like, well, they didn't like it. And I was like, Sam. <laughs> I felt so bad. Because like, I didn't know you really that yeah. well. And I was like, fuck, I just did that accident. I was like, it wasn't even on purpose. And you're like, no, no. <laughs> Damn it. I've still never read that review. Uh-huh. I won't. Yeah. <laughs> but I've had people come up and talk to me about it. And they're like, I think it's wrong. So I like that. Okay, you like that book. You won't read it, though. <laughs> no. See, you're like a healthy person. We, yeah, I don't, I don't, or I'm a weak person. I'm so weak. I know I can't read stuff about me. Are you weak? I don't, I didn't, I don't get a sense of that. Like, well, I'm weak enough that I can't do it. You know, mm. if I was a strong person, you know, like Devin Fracci, my co-host on the canon, he loves reading hate stuff about him. He like thrives off of it. Yeah. It's like, it gives him power. And with me, I just crumble. So I, I just have to keep away from everything. Mm. What are you afraid of reading though? Well, whatever we're all afraid of, that we're that somebody thinks we're a big dummy. Or worse, when you actually do fuck something up and they're like, you fucked it up. That's horrible. A as big somebody dummy. Who, Yeah, you don't want people to think you're a big dummy. Mm-hmm. So it's like a give and take. I try not to write on Twitter that I think people are big dummies, and then hopefully nobody tells me a big dummy. Yeah. Because I think we live in a world that's really negative sometimes. I think yeah. Twitter especially. Twitter especially. It's negative. Yeah, pile on culture on Twitter. Somebody says like the wrong word and a thousand people jump on them. And right. It's not cool. And I, I think people who love to get into the fray and like make fun of people, especially when you just say something clumsy or wrong or it's misconstrued mm. and everybody's so quick to call somebody sexist or racist or whatever. All of that is just a male ground I don't want to be on. Right. Because I don't, it's going to come around to all of us anyway. So we should just be nice when other people fuck up and patient and, ass- I, I don't know, assume that people didn't actually mean the worst of it. And then if they do, okay. Yeah. But if they don't, or if it's an accident, mm-hmm. we punish people a lot for careless thinking. <laughs> Did you think uh, when you were going to, like when you're starting to write film reviews, that there would be a point where you're concerned about what people say on Twitter? About. never it didn't exist it's crazy it's like such a random comments didn't really barely exist even yeah yeah and then who knows what it's going to be in five years like that's scary to me this this already seems overwhelming so what's the future um well five years uh am i allowed to ask how old you are no <laughs> well then i can't make the statement i was gonna make i, was, I, had, I had a perfect statement lined up well five the lady y- does not tell okay well but i think you can easily do the math from everything i've said here no i don't do math i'm no, terrible fair enough. um i'd say five to ten years maybe the second goal oh, i wish comes true or we'll all be dead maybe there could be another like the fuck 9 11 okay well if that happens, then you're not <laughs> the only. Yeah, yo. If you, I love how if that happens, you're the only person. Like you, you die, but everyone else yeah. is okay. It would just be my luck. It'd like be, right. a plane crashes, but it's an empty plane, and somehow it only hits me. I think you're the bad luck's gone. I think you had only so. good, unless you haven't told me something terrible that you do on a routine, you know, on a regular basis. I mean, you know, I shave my cat into a lion cut and humiliate him. That's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's. 
I don't know. I could eat less meat. I should definitely eat less meat. Yeah, I don't think you're going to diet. Well, well. I, I definitely drink too much whiskey. No, can you drink too much whiskey? Yes. <laughs> um, so, this has gone pretty well for you. This whole career. Oh, I thought you meant this podcast. I was oh. like, yeah, after we started off like everybody getting mad at me for not liking religion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, the podcast. <laughs> Talking yeah. about my dad, yeah. 9-11. This has been a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Um, are you happy with all this? Yeah. Like with this whole trajectory, you not going to grad school. Yeah, that seems like it would have been miserable, honestly. Yeah. Did, uh, yeah. but, you, but I guess it seemed like you were someone who had goals early on and you had like very clear ambitions. Like, I want to work at the LA Weekly. And you had very, you had a, a map in your head for a profession that, as we have talked about, doesn't have a map. There's no equation. There's no, if you do this and do this, you get here. And yet it's worked out. I know, it freaks you. me out. Yeah. <laughs> it freaks me out. It's like... But do you think you deserve it? I hope so. But it's... When you don't know how you got so lucky, you don't know how to keep it going. You know, it almost feels like... But I think you know how you got so lucky. No, it's a lot of like... You you know how it goes in this world. It's, you know, the best film critic jobs, there's one person who has them. And they have them as long as they have them. Yeah. And then there's a hundred people who might want it when they're gone. And you, who knows where you'll be on that cycle. Mm. Like, honestly, one of the best things that happened to me is that Box Office shut down its iPad magazine... And I was out of a job for like six months and it was terrifying. And I thought, what if this is it? Like, what if this is as far as I get with this film criticism thing? You know, I was thinking about maybe picking up playwriting back again because I used to think I might be like, I in those like middle years when I was doing a lot of theater criticism right. and not writing about film, I was... You were going to theater and thinking, oh, I could do that. Yeah, I got my, well, I got my master's in playwriting like in that oh, time. Oh, so you did get a master's. I did, but I didn't get a PhD, but I got a master's because I felt like I needed to do something. I love how... <laughs> you getting a master's is immediately followed by, but I didn't get a PhD. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's a weird master's. It, I mean, it's in playwriting. I just wrote a bunch of plays. Yeah. But, but you still got a master's, Amy. You can be good with that. and like, You don't <laughs> need the PhD. You're doing fine. I don't think I could have been happy if I didn't get that. Well, really? no, that's not true. I felt That's a cute... You don't think you could have been happy if you didn't get the master's? Actually, I can't I can't really mean that. I never think about it. It's a weird thing. It's like a weird hobby I did for a couple of years when I didn't have anything else mm-hmm. to do. I was just teaching kids the SAT prep and writing theater reviews and finally making enough money. I was off food stamps mm. and figuring, I guess I should just go to grad school. Like, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what else to do. Do you think a lot of your happiness is placed in your career? Yeah, that's definitely my number one. Is that worrisome? No, but, you know, the older you get, the more you start thinking about, like, you know, the life of are you prepared to give up everything right. to for your career. I was thinking about that David Foster Wallace. He talks about, um, and I'm, I don't mean to sound like I haven't read, I haven't finished it, just, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like a David Foster Wallace. No, but you have seen the Jason Segel movie. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and I interviewed Jesse Eisberg. <laughs> I've done that. Um, no, but... <laughs> Fuck me. Um, the, what I was trying to say, because I think about it a lot for myself, because I do this, is if if you place all your reward and like self worth and happiness in your career and the thing that you're trying to constantly move up, then like it's never gonna like it's never gonna be enough. 
And that worries me because yeah. I put a lot of stock into it. And I'm trying to figure out like, wow, okay, I can't, I gotta, I gotta love other things. I gotta be, and I do, but it's really hard because I, in my head, I'm like, no, the thing, the career is not a nine to five job I don't want to do. It's something I love doing. Yeah. And yet, I worry that I put too much into it. And then I'm going to be constantly let down. Yeah, that's why I worry about New Yorker at 50. I totally get that. Because what happens if it doesn't work out? I don't have I don't have a backup. Yeah. So, I, yeah. And it, but I mean, it's so tied. You know, part of why we do what we do, part of why we're film critics, I think, is because we're people who need that kind of mental stimulation all the time. You know, we're people who we could never be happy unless we had a job where... We every day we're thinking about something totally different, you know, Korean war dramas and yeah. like '90s romantic comedies, and we need to be distracted by that. Yeah, and documentaries, <laughs> like yeah, we need. For me, film criticism is just a way to feel like you're learning something every day, and that's no matter what job it was I ended up in, and I, I knew I needed that, and then it just turned out to be that that was what film criticism was for me. Mm. But the, I, yeah. I guess what I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but that it's like something just in our DNA. Like that's whatever we ended up doing, it would have to be something I think that satisfied that itch. And maybe there are other things that do. This is the only one I know of for me. Yeah. But I guess if it collapsed, I'd have to find something. (laughs) Well, I'm hoping it doesn't collapse for you. I hope so. (laughs) But who knows? Publishing could collapse. Yeah. Anything could collapse. (laughs) The New York Times is having trouble staying afloat and they're like the gold standard. They are. Yeah, what end on a positive note. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you, Sam. It was fun. I hope I have not been too morbid, sorry. No, not morbid at all. Fair enough. Well, there it is. You can purchase Amy's book on Tom Cruise on Amazon. We'll include a link in the show notes. You can also find her weekly on MTV News. And lastly, a big thanks to Amy Nicholson for letting me come into her house and record this episode. Also, for the free omelet. If you're listening, do be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, please email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at talkeasypod. Our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Technical assistance by Joe Stillwater. The show is produced and edited by Corey Tad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.